Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Jim Valentino from Image Comics, and you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelist, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, thar, social medias. Sometimes unusual. Go ahead. First off, go on to Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a like ski on there. Go on Twitter and Instagram at The Marvelists. Give us a follow on both of those. We, we would appreciate that. You can also follow us individually, myself on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. I also just joined TikTok. I don't know why, but I mean, everyone's in quarantine and everyone's doing it. Uh-huh. So you can follow me on there, not at Peter Melnick. That name has been taken, but at Peter Melnick, but better. Seriously. Anyway, mm. you can also find Eddie Wilson on social media only on one place in the whole wide world, and that's on Instagram, at... Eddie9193. And on top of all of those different little thingamabobs, you can also listen to us on a wide variety of streaming platforms. Tune in Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, Spotify, SoundCloud, etc., etc. You name it, if there's an RSS feed, we're there. Just pick one, we'll be very happy you did. Exactly. They have little rating systems on there. Give us a good rating. Tell them that we don't. Tell them all that we don't suck. We appreciate it. At least mediocre plus. Ah, uh, the the way we aspire to be. <laughs> also, you can find us on iTunes, where rate, review, subscribe, and on social media, share the show. But enough of that long rambling palaver. Let us introduce our very special guest on today's show. Eddie, you do the honors. He is coming to us from I think across these great United States. And today, gentlemen, I also want to say happy National Superhero Day, April 28th, Jim Valentino. Hey, how you doing, guys? Thank you, Jim, for joining us. We appreciate uh, the the uh, time and everything as we all, you know, get through this. Yeah, I'm glad to Just virtually be here. Easy, easy, easiest way to say that. We're all in three, di- in three different locations, and that's the way it's got to be. Yep. So now, gentlemen, first off, Jim... Again, also for myself, thank you for doing the show. And I got to tell you, I'm a big fan of the Guardians of the Galaxy. And in recent memory, I've been slowly getting into the OG lineup, the originals. And I have not gotten to your run yet. I'm currently still going. I just finished some uh, Gerber. I'm right now on like a Roger Stern issue. But the stuff with you, how did you get onto that title? Um, well, I had done some sporadic work for Marvel, uh, some what ifs and a few other things, and I was looking for a series, and um, there was a convention coming up in Oakland. I was in Southern California at the time, 
and uh, my studio mate, Rob Liefeld, you may have heard of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went up to Oakland, and I had several proposals for a new series. I figured that the best thing to do would be to try something that wasn't active at the moment, to, to revitalize something. So one of the series was called Young Avengers that Rob and I were going to do together. Um, but as it turned out, um, Tom DeFalco had just introduced the new warriors in Thor, and that hadn't been published yet, so we didn't know about it. Basically, our idea was just to do the Teen Titans for Marvel. And I had a few other projects, and at the last minute, I came up with Guardians of the Galaxy. And I asked Rob, you know, what he thought about them. He said that he thought they were great visually, but they didn't have a story. And um, just before the convention, I think a day or two before the show, before we left for the show, um, I came up with the idea of of a quest for uh, Captain America's shield, knowing that Vance Astro, when he was a kid, was a huge fan of Captain America, so it all seemed to tie together to me. And, and, one of and the Tom bought it. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. I, you know, I'm going through these characters right now, and my original introduction to the Guardians obviously was the, you know, the more modern run of, you know, Star Lord Gamora, etc. But yeah. it took me a while to get into these characters. Like I would, I would try, eh, try, eh. And then it finally clicked. And, I've been, you know, like I said, I've been plowing through this series, and there's just something about these characters. And I feel like they're very underappreciated. And the Marvel Universe should maybe, you know, give a little bit more props to that, you know, those kind of characters, because what we have now cinematically, what we have now in the comics and in television, etc., it's kind of thanks to them in a lot of ways. These, you know, the stories, the intergalactic stories, and yeah. You mean the the the, the my guardians of the galaxy? I'm Honestly, not sure yeah. which, which team you're talking about. Well, the the original lineup of the characters: Martin X, Charlie, uh, yeah. Astro, Starhawk. Those characters definitely they're responsible for a lot of things that we have nowadays. You have the Starlin stuff, but merge them together and it's just something very special, you know? Yeah, well, I was influenced a lot by um, things that Jim Starlin had done and, of course, Steve Gerber had done in, in, you know, that series, the Marvel Presents series. So, you know, a lot of the stuff had been around for a while. I think what I brought to the table was who would survive to, you know, for a thousand years and, and you know, how, how would it look that way, which... You know, I got criticism for, but that was the whole point of the, the the theme of the story was, you know, what happens a thousand exploring the Marvel universe doesn't mean exploring the planets in the Marvel universe. It means exploring the people in the Marvel universe. And what was one of your major goals in regards to you know working on the series? Um, to feed my family. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the best answer. When it comes down to breast taxes, that's what it is. You keep yeah. things going. I wanted to tell interesting stories about characters that I thought had an awful lot of potential, um, and that I enjoyed doing. I enjoyed. I, I 
I've always enjoyed groups, you know, from the time I was a kid. And uh, and when I was doing the Guardians, it was nice to play off of one another. There are different personalities and, you know, things like that. So um, I, I pretty much had arcs for all of them individually, which played into the group dynamic. So, Jim, it sounds like that you being a Guardians fan, and it was great that you got to do what you wanted to do as far as a character or a title to begin with, um, and Peter goes back and says, obviously, because he came into it later, because we're both older than him, kind of thing. And so I do remember the Marvel Presents Guardians, but I guess at some point maybe you or others said, hey, why can't we pick up these characters and do something else with them? And here we are from the in the 90s run. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Tom had an idea, Tom DeFalco had an idea to advance them 500 years in their future. So that would be the... 35th century or 36th century. Mm-hmm. And his idea was to make them into a, an actual galactic organization. So basically sort of the way I, you know, when he told me this, I, I pitched back at him sort of like the Green Lantern Corps if they were the Legion of Superheroes. And he was like, yeah, kind of like that, you know? So I told him I could set that up for him, which I did in issue eight with the Galactic Guardians idea. Um, So, yeah, I mean, what I saw was my influence mostly came from Gerber in the sense that uh, um, he had laid out different personalities for the characters. Now, if I can, Jim, um, it's a little bit taking off of this particular run, which went about, what, 61, 62 issues? Um, Yeah. A significant run, but that seemed to be the, the... dead end or the, the last issue number for that and a couple others around that time. Uh, Namor, I think another one, and was it New Warriors possibly? Any idea why that was the end point? No, I was long gone by then. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, my my last issue was 26 or 27, something like that. So Okay, I wasn't sure. At, if... at that point, I wasn't paying attention. Mm-hmm. Understandable, sure. And one of the things you mentioned was Rob talking about the looks of the characters, and the one that stands out the most for me is Martin X. Just that, you know, the crystalline kind of look to him, and I feel like the Guardians of the Galaxy themselves are the most, the original lineup, are the most toyetic of all of the lineups, when you really think about it, because a kid going to a toy store and seeing a Martin X action figure... I would imagine they'd flip their lid because that's just such a cool looking design. And when you end up working on the book, you know, you have your say in how the characters are going to look as the artist as well. Were there any like changes you wanted to do to some of the characters to maybe, you know, add a little bit more pizzazz to them? There were several things. Um, one of them was um, with Martin X, for example, um, I streamlined him quite a bit. So he was more, he was based on the planes um, of, of the body by Andrew Loomis. Um, if you know Andrew Loomis's work, he, he broke down the body into various geometric planes. So that's what I did with Martin X, so that he could be drawn the same way over and over again. Because the way he was done originally, nobody ever drew him twice the same way. Um, and Charlie, um, Charlie wore a mask early on. Well, if you've ever worn a mask, you know how absolutely uncomfortable they are. Mm. So I was like, why wouldn't anyone wear a mask who isn't hiding their secret, their identity? You know, it's just dumb. 
So I got rid of the mask. There were little things like that. Um, the um, Yondu's crest, uh, to me, it went all the way down his back, all the way to the small of his back. So the, the outfit that they had him wearing, he would smash the crest. It, it would be uncomfortable for him. So his tunic was open all the way, both front and back, to account for the, the crest. So there were little things like that, minor things in, in their design that, that um, I tried to tweak. Eddie? Jim, do you recall going to another title that you mentioned, What If? And I'm from the source I looked up, I got about eight different issues that you did. Do you recall the storylines and you know what the That I did for What If? Yeah. Well, the most popular one was What If Wolverine was an agent of Shield. Mm-hmm. Um, Rob drew that one. It was his idea. Um, and the, uh, the editor for the series, Craig Anderson, was coming to visit me in my studio. Uh, a couple of days beforehand, Rob pitched that at me, just the title. And I said, tell that to Craig. And he said it to Craig, and Craig said, yeah, do it. <laughs> it was that simple, just, just the title alone. Uh, the other ones I did were, um, what if the X-Men had stayed in Asgard? Um, what if the Fantastic Four all had the same power? That came from a uh, suggestion in the letters column from reader. Um, there were a few others. I can't remember all of them. Uh, what if they lost Atlantis attacks? Oh, what if the Avengers had fought Galactus? The Fantastic Four never existed, so the Avengers had to fight Galactus, the early Avengers. Yeah. I just noticed, though, after over time, having grown up with the original What If and remembering those kind of key storylines and, and almost memorizing, you know, what the outcome of a What If story, like of the first one, uh, What If Spider-Man became a member of the Fantastic Four, or What If Bruce Banner uh, retained his intelligence in the form of the Hulk. But mm-hmm. now, with what's come out with Volume 2, and then What If featuring a certain character... It makes me just think, well, it was somewhat, at least moderately, if not more popular to begin with, but then how many more ideas never made it to the comic book pages? You mean what-if ideas? or Sure. um, Yeah, I'm sure there were plenty. I mean, um, they seemed to be fairly easy to pitch, at least initially. They were pretty much based on origin stories, you know, a tweak to the origin. I think the biggest complaint about what ifs was that usually a character died during the what if. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, the response from a writer's point of view was well, if they survived in the real world, then in the what if world, that was kind of a feat to calm play, you know? Mm-hmm. They, they would lose. One of my favorite moments going to a comic book shop, by the way, when you mentioned the characters dying and whatnot is they were reprinting all of the Phoenix-related books for Marvel uh, uh, True Believers. A guy, uh, and I'm walking by him, and I just overhear this. What if Phoenix had lived? And then there's just a long pause, and he goes, well, she'd still be alive. (laughs) So it's it's one of those when you just... That's what I've always noticed as well with the uh, what ifs. They usually just end in death. And (laughs) I, I don't want that, but yet at the same time, it's like, well bound to happen eventually. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they all ended in death, but they did. And that's sort of was my approach to the Guardians, was it was kind of a, a what-if series 
and a, um, a team-up series, kind of what-if team-up in the future. <laughs> huh. wow. Except we call the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. And what the, from both a writer perspective and a fan perspective, what do you think is the main appeal of the what-if storylines to you? Uh, to me, it's just something different happens. I mean, uh, um, you know, that, that to make it uh, interesting, a bit more interesting, a bit, you know, divergent to, to move it away from what actually happened. I, I find that interesting as a fan. As a writer, it, you know, the fun part for me was doing all the research and the back issues and then pulling it all together and kind of figuring out how to make it, you know, how to make it different. They were a lot of what fun for me to write. What, for yourself, what was the most fun what-if to write? Um, yeah, they all had their, their moments. I guess the most fun would have been the uh, two Avengers one. Um, uh, what if the Vision had turned against the Avengers, um, which was the first one, and then the what if the Avengers had to fight Galactus? The Avengers was always my favorite team when I was a kid. That's an that's an interesting uh, feeling about that because I know like back in the day, it's interesting how it like kind of flipped because back in the sixties seventies, the Fantastic Four were like the headliners, the main event guys, and the Fanta- or the Avengers were yeah, they're there but they're not as important as the FF. And now you know nowadays, obviously it makes sense due to the you know the studio rights at the time and everything, but. Seeing the Fantastic Four just pushed to the side in favor of the Avengers, as an Avengers fan, I, I imagine you love that. Um, <laughs> well, you have to remember, I'm, I'm, I'm ancient, so I was, <laughs> I was 10 years old in 1962. At the end of 1962, I turned 10. So I was the perfect age for the Marvel age and the Silver Age and all that kind of stuff. So I loved the Fantastic Four. I thought they were the world's greatest comic magazine, just like the the title says. It was an incredible, incredible comic. But when I saw Avengers number one on stands and I bought it off of the stands, it was like a dream come true. That was Marvel's Justice League. Mm. And I, as a fan, I'd been waiting for Marvel's Justice League. So it was very, very exciting for me to see that book. And the book was uh, was not a disappointment. It was a great book. Absolutely. And for yourself, what is your ideal Avengers team? Like, what are the core roles and I'm trying core roles and members? What should it be? Oh, <laughs> pick your faves. Maybe who you'd like to have. Well, it would always be Thor. Iron Man, Captain America would be, you know, the, the basis of the team. Um, I loved it when Steve Englehart um, introduced the Beast as an Avenger mm. uh, because he was so much fun, and he added a sense of lightness to the group, To you know. Um, Vision and Scarlet Witch um, are great characters to have on the team. The only thing I would disagree with was... Um, the I, the notion, and, and this was, I don't know, 10 years ago, I guess, where everyone is an Avenger. Because if everyone's an Avenger, then nothing special about the Avengers. That's true. 
I think even the, a, a while ago, quite a while ago, they put out the uh, the charter membership listing, the bylaws, that kind of thing. And I can't recall if, but I know in some regular reading of the issues, it had to be, I guess, six, maybe seven tops. That's that made up the number of characters that were in this in this group. And I don't know if it deviated too much from that. And he'd be yeah, seven is, you have is a really good number for a group for a, a team. Um, so yeah, I, I tried to keep the guardians and, and around that that number, and, mm-hmm. and I agree that that's just about the perfect number. Yeah. What was Eddie, that, Peter? Be honest. Yeah. Eddie, be honest. Do you have the uh, charter and bylaws laminated? Because I can totally see that. You know I do. It's in the basement. <laughs> it's it's a nice customized two-by-three-foot piece. It's very cool, in case you want to do some heavy reading or whatever. Yeah. Uh, oh, my God. I remember this now. <laughs> see? There anyway. you go. We've social distanced too long, Jim, I think. I don't know. We really uh, have. <laughs> uh, Jim, can you talk uh, for a minute? Because if people are not familiar, maybe heard of the character, and I'm not too altogether familiar with the character of Shadowhawk, because I see you did a number of books on this character. Um, it was a character that I did when we first started Image. He's basically a Ditko roof runner. Um, he's uh, takes Batman and turn him up a notch or three, and you've got Shadowhawk. So he has no compulsion with uh, maybe killing? He didn't kill. What he did was he would maim people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we can get into superheroes killing and some of my thoughts about that. But he actually didn't kill. He would break their backs and thereby cripple them. His, the notion, that the, the conceit behind it was um, Batman keeps on letting the Joker, a homicidal maniac, go free. So, really, Batman is complicit in every single death that the Joker causes. Yeah, I can see that. I'm in absolute agreement with that. So, you know, the real reason superheroes don't kill, and and there's a whole thing about this, in my opinion, but they don't kill because the villains um, have to be recycled. So, if Mm -hmm. Batman killed the Joker, the Joker would never come back, and you would lose untold numbers of sales and merch opportunities. Mm-hmm. That's why they don't kill. Um, the, the moral quandary is this. Villains kill the innocent. Heroes kill to protect the innocent. And in every single medium except for superhero comic books, heroes kill. Even in the movies, heroes kill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you mentioned with the movies, with the characters, you know, killing, it, it's kind of, sometimes you'll see a character just get killed off and you're just like, no, I wanted more of them. But, yeah, I absolutely yeah. agree with that whole aspect of it's, they're part of the problem then, you know, causing more and more stuff happening if these characters keep coming back and back and back. Well, it only seems to be a problem, in, yeah, in, in comic books and with comic book readers. They don't seem to have a problem with Captain America picking up a, a you know submachine gun and blasting away Hydra characters, you know, in the movies. But God forbid if he killed anyone in the comic book. I mean, I had a fan. I wrote a um, the very first Image Marvel crossover, which was uh, Wolverine and Badrock, and in it, and I think the opening pages, I, I had Wolverine stalking the Gigantosaur. And he killed the animal. And 
attending the convention shortly after it came out, some fan was literally shaking because he was so upset over the fact that Wolverine killed this animal. <laughs> wow. Like, you've, you've got to be kidding. Yeah, um, that might have been that person's first introduction to Wolverine and not a good start. I, I don't I, think so. Oh, <laughs> even, wow. But, yeah, um, this guy was really, really upset. Sometimes that can be both a positive and a negative with how, you know, a fan can react to something like that, like, you know, in regards to the uh, the written work, because you end up getting that emotional investment. And, you know, once you have that, that person's hooked, you know. But then there's also that, you know, it's just a book, right? <laughs> well, having the emotional investment is fine. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You should be emotionally invested in these characters. You almost have to be in order to collect them. But you should, you know, you should also have some lines as to, um, you know, how, how involved you really are. I mean, you know, there is such a thing as reality. Yeah. Um, I mean, Marv Wolfman many years ago told me he got death threats when they killed Supergirl in Crisis on Infinite Earths. I got death threats when I introduced Shadowhawk as a black man. Um, you know, that's going a little far. Yeah, there's been like a number of uh, creators, especially in recent memory, and some that we uh, we might know on the show as well, Eddie, yeah. that, you know, they received that, and it's it's scary. It's honestly scary. Especially yeah. when, you know, when you say, and that is very surprising to hear that, Jim, with, with regards to Shadowhawk, because this, if I'm not mistaken, kind of started in 1992, and come on, let's, this is not 30 years prior. Yeah, well, there are a lot of extremely ignorant people, yeah. even still today, so, you know, what can you say? I mean, there's a lot of people who their prejudices run very, very deep. Yeah. And, well, which ones, know. which characters in comic books, Jim, do you recall uh, growing up with, and the first ones you had collected, read. Oh, <laughs> you're not ancient. Um, there are others that are older. Than you. I'm not going to name names, but you're not quite at the upper crust of of there. Oh, um, yeah, kind of. Um, I'll, I'll be 68 this year, so yeah, kind of. Um, it, it's hard to say. I, it, I started drawing when I was about two. And my father read comics in um, World War II. Mm -hmm. And he was a big Superman fan. So I'm going to guess that my first comics must have been in the Superman family. Okay. So we're talking Superman, action, adventure. Um, and this would be probably 1954 or so. The first comic I actually have an absolute memory of reading was this coverless copy that a cousin of mine had back when uh, I lived in New York. I was a kid. must have been, knowing, knowing what the comic is now, it must have been about 57 or so. And it was this comic about this guy dressed in red leotards that was chasing after a guy that talked real slow and just had dots between every single word. And many years later... I discovered that that comic was showcase number four. That's the one I remember. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, so quite a ways. I mean, like I said, I bought Avengers number one off the stands and number four off the stands. I bought my first Spider-Man was number four. Mm. Um, my first Fantastic Four was number five. I remember that one. Not for Dr. Doom, but because um, the thing was uh, Blackbeard, the pirate. Oh, right. I thought it was so cool. <laughs> well, you threw me right back when you said coverless comic, and I don't know if we've actually interviewed or talked to anybody who's used a term like that, and that threw me immediately back to seeing comic books at the barbershop when I was just about getting into my teenage years, and they were just, you know, strewn with the other periodicals or magazines, and you just had something to read there, and yeah, the covers had come off from being used and reread and thrown around, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also... Um Back in the day, they would strip the covers, so they would strip the top third of the cover where the logo was, right? I've always wondered why they would do that. Well, because it's easier to, if they strip the cover, if they strip the logo um, off the cover, then they don't have to send back the entire book. They just send back the, the cover strips. You could stick it in an envelope, and it costs almost nothing to send it back. Whereas if they sent out the the actual books, there would be shipping charges. Sending back That's to why the, they did it. The, the publisher there was uh, um, like fees or something. If you had to, they were being loaned. What? No, no, no. The books were returnable. Okay, so anything that you didn't sell on the stands, you would return. So instead of shipping the whole entire book, they would ship just piece of the cover. Mm. So let's say you had 25 books, okay? If you have 25 books, it may cost, you know, it may be three pounds or something like that to send those back. If you strip the, the top of the cover off of those books, it's less than a pound. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. That's some just... And that's why they did it. Yeah. There's another thing you guys may not know. I don't know if you do or not, but... And back in the day, back in the early days, the reason that logos were on the top third was because of the way that comics were racked. And comics were racked either face out or um, just the top part, the logo part, which is why you'd always want the logo there, or spine out. So there was this guy um, named Steve Ditko. You may have heard of him. Um, he invented the Marvel Corner Box, and he invented it so that you could tell which Marvel comic was if it was stacked fine out. That's the origin of the, of the Corner Box. That's great. I, I have heard of the way, like you're saying, for display purposes to being able to identify with being on the top and that kind of thing. But it just yeah. in some way doesn't make sense, and I don't know if I've seen a partially torn book like that intentionally so that you could return... Just the, the top, the portion of it, and sure. I guess it was acceptable then. I'm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe in a, in a whole, different... whole different world back Yeah, then. well, maybe in a different, on a different corollary uh, as far as getting autographs on comic books on the covers versus it was not a good thing. They'd have to sign on the inside front page type of thing, and but now it's okay to sign the front cover. It, yeah, it depends. There's a... Um... I always insist, I always ask people to sign the covers when I had comics autographed stuff. Mm -hmm. But some people didn't, you know, so old school guys seem to like to autograph it on the inside. Yeah. Whereas by the time I came up, it was perfectly okay to autograph the covers. Right. 
for myself, it does drive me nuts when I like I'll I love having the cover signed if it's a floppy, but if it's uh, a paperback, I always prefer you know have them sign inside of it. And I've had paperbacks where the cover is signed, and I'm just like, ah, fine. Yeah, but you can always tell it's signed. I mean, if it's signed on the inside, you got to open it up to see. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I I know uh, when you mentioned just now the. Uh, with the signing on the inside, they would always have it signed also on the bottom. I recently, yeah. uh, I think for Christmas came across a, uh, signed book that, you know, for, uh, Eddie for Christmas. And it was, you could tell when it was signed, essentially. It was kind of cool to see that. It, where was it signed? Uh, it was signed on the bottom. It was a random issue of, uh, Fantastic Four signed by John Byrne. Cause you know, I wanted to grab something like that for Eddie for Christmas. And they, uh-huh. You know, you you never see his signature in the wild anymore. So I was like, ooh, oh, the yeah, cover. Well, <laughs> less said about John Byrne, the better. Um, <laughs> I, I I have a um, copy of uh, Flash uh, one two three, the first uh, uh, Golden Age Flash yep. team up, and it's signed right down the middle by Carmine Infantino on the front page. Right down the middle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah right. where the, like the two flashes are facing each other, and boom, right down the middle, he signed it. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's kind of cool. What are some of your favorite characters in the Marvel universe, and also just the DC universe? Um, boy, my favorite characters. Well, Captain America is one of my favorite characters. Always has been. Um, the Fantastic Four, I mean, pretty much all of them. You know, all, all the the old school characters, Spider Man, Doctor Strange, all those guys. Uh, I love them all. To be honest, the answer of all the characters is a great answer because, to be honest, for myself, that's it's very hard to nail down just one character because then you could be like, I like this about this character, this about this character. You know? Yeah, I've never been one of those people. At first, I've never been one of those people that that believes Marvel or DC. You know, you can like them both. Mm. They both have great characters. They both have great books and great creators. Um, They're similar and different, and there's no reason not to like them both. Um, And that's perfectly okay. (laughs) Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and I've never been the kind of person that... um, uh, top tens things. I, I I just don't do that. It's like it, it, I feel the same way about characters. You know, um, you know. I, I think the book that I'm looking the most forward to right now is that big giant. Um, Marvel is producing these huge, huge books, and the next one coming out is going to be Ditko's Doctor Strange, which you know I'm very much looking forward to. You mean the omnibuses? Not the omnibuses. No, these are. There was one called The Hold Galactus. There was one, uh, Kirby's. Kirby is fantastic, which was his. Oh, fantastic. the king size ones. Yeah, the king size ones. I have not seen those in the wild, and I've wanted to see at least one, but I can never find them anywhere. And wow. ironically, they're gigantic. I can buy them off online. You know, I think that's how I got mine. Was I bought them online? Um. But yeah, they're wonderful. They're great. You have to have a big surface to lay them out on. <laughs> they are huge. Anything like the size of the uh, Marvel tryout book? That was that out? was treasury size, wasn't it? It was larger. 
<laughs> maybe just maybe it was a little narrower, but it was taller. It's the big. Uh, it, it is. It's definitely because I have a copy. I never did anything with it, but I was like, oh, this is cool. I think it was the cover price of maybe thirteen bucks at the time, and I thought it was cool to have, and I still have it. But yeah, it, it doesn't fit into just about any anything uh, quite possible. It's yeah. It, it's, yeah it's, Mark Bagley would know more about that than I would. <laughs> yeah, well, that's how Mark got his job at, at Marvel. Was he 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 did it, and that's how he got a job. Wow, very cool. Yeah, yeah. Peter, you've cool. spoken. You've spoken. I think to him. Maybe you, you did or didn't know that already. I don't know. I didn't. I did not know that. Okay. One other character, yeah. Jim, I'd like to ask you about, and that's Normal Man. <laughs> yeah. What more do you want to know? What origin and what he's all about. Normal Man. Normal Man's the exact opposite of Superman. Normal Man came from a planet called Lefram, which is Marvel spelled backwards. <laughs> um, he, um, his father was a junior CPA who thought the planet was going to blow up. So he sent his son into outer space, his infant son. And the planet didn't blow up, so the infant son's mother killed the father for sending her baby into outer space, which is, you know, the only logical thing to do. <laughs> Anyways, he, um, he landed on Levram, where everyone and everything has superpowers, except him. He's the only normal person on the whole planet. And he was befriended by a guy named Captain Everything, who's had the ability to change powers with every plot twist or negate all known laws of physics. But he was so dumb, he would forget how to fly while he was in flight and wound up marrying a woman named Sophisticated Lady. <laughs> I don't know what else you need to know. I love this. <laughs> Uh, he met a character named Sergeant Fluffy, whose eye patch changed with every eye every time we saw him. So panel by panel, it would be on the right eye or the left eye or whatever, which was which was uh, exceeded by Don Simpson, my rival at the time. Was doing uh, Megaton Man. He had a guy named uh, Sergeant Stephanopoulos or something like that, who had two eye patches which I thought was even funnier. Um, <laughs> so, there you go. Wow. Two eye patches, but that doesn't sound very functional. <laughs> well, no, but, you know, they're, they were both parody series. So, yeah, there we go. Okay. You know, making fun of everything. Um, Sergeant Fluffy was an agent of schmuck, which had an asterisk every time I, I put it in. The asterisk led down to a footnote that says stands for nothing in particular. And <laughs> I did that every single time. So, you know, it was it was supposed to be funny. Mm-hmm. Well, for lasting, it looks like 12 issues plus an annual and then a 20th anniversary special. That's yeah. your normal, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my idea was always to do different things, you know. Um, I never wanted to do the same thing twice. And that, again, that's, you know, a cool thing to see, like, in the evolution of a writer, just, you know, all the different things they can, you know, pull off. And, I, I, again, I've only known your work for uh, Shadowhawk and Guardians, mm-hmm. but, you know, those were very serious kind of characters-ish. And then to know, you know, that you do the comedic stuff and just, you know, your description alone of some of the stuff. I like that. It's really funny. And 
I'm hard to make laugh sometimes, so thank you. Well, well, Normal Man was satire, but then I also did autobiographical underground stuff. Um, so, and that's completely different from all the rest of them as well. And you, you said you do you did autobiographical comics. Mm-hmm. What yeah. do you think is one of the most intriguing parts of doing our biographical book? Um, boy, that's a tough question to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is. I mean, it, it, for the majority of them, they're, they're funny stories. They're just funny anecdotes, you know, um, things that, that I, I, <laughs> I've had a pretty colorful life. So, um, you know, these are just funny anecdotes of things that happened to me. Um, they make funny stories, um, for the most part. A couple of them are serious, but most of them are just funny. You know, like telling anecdotes about, you know, the stuff you did when you were in college or whatever. War stories. I like that. It's like the idea of, you know, like wrapping our narrative around it, too. You know, you can find a way, and that's a real test for a writer, too. You know, you mentioned, like, the anecdotes. And yeah. Wrapping a narrative around that is a good skill to have. It helps you, you know, um, it, it, it helps in, in creating those narratives, at least it did for me, you know. Um, before Normal Man, I don't think I'd ever written a story that was more than eight pages, you know. And then coming on The Guardians where, you know, I had a story that continued to evolve for over 25 issues. Eddie? I think we've exhausted uh, a good amount of questions here, and I'm not sure what else, Jim, you might want to add into what um, you're up to currently. You want to divulge what's what's ahead, or maybe something you'd like to get involved with, this or in a different direction. I don't know. Well, right now I'm concentrating mostly on just publishing. and mm-hmm. um, I really haven't written or drawn anything in quite a while. I'm... Um, just got done researching a project that um, that I may be doing. I'm not real sure to see whether or not it gels. You know, sometimes you you do the research on a project and it doesn't quite come together for you in terms of the narrative. Hopefully, this one will, but we'll see. Yeah. You know, like I said, I haven't done one in, in quite a while, so it's just more difficult to to jump back in and to exercise those those muscles and. But mostly just publishing. Um, uh, I publish a book called The Marked by Brian Haverlin. This is about a, a group of influencers who use their tattoos as magical icons. So, hmm. yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of an interesting concept, you know. Uh, we're just about to launch, well just about to launch. We don't know when we're launching anything anymore, um, mm-hmm. you know, with the, the virus oh, and everything. Yeah. But uh, um, we're bringing back Bomb Queen for the first time in about eight years, and that is political, social, sexual satire. <laughs> um, not meant for children or moms. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty out there stuff, but very funny. Um so yeah, you know that's basically what I do these days. And as a fan of comics, I have to say that I really appreciate everything that Image has given us 
in regards to the ability of you know creator uh, creator owned content and just changing how the comic industry is and just pop culture in general. So I got to say thank you, you know, especially for everything you guys have done. Oh, thank you. Uh, you know, we got a lot of uh, a lot of negativity when we first started out. People misunderstood what we were doing or what we were trying to do. And, uh, you know, it's come around, you know, now, thankfully, mm-hmm. after nearly 30 years now, we're, I think, two years away from our 30th anniversary. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, at first we got all kinds of, of grief for, A, leaving Marvel, um, and people <laughs> misunderstanding, thinking that we hated Marvel. I don't think any of us with the exception of Todd, said anything negative about Marvel. Um, we all loved our time there and enjoyed working there and working with the people that we worked with. Um, and we got a lot of grief because all the books that were launched were superhero books. And there was reason for that. We wanted to come out of the gate swinging, and that's what our fans wanted to see us do was superhero books. It just made good sense. You know, we had watched all these guys leave Marvel and DC and do their quote-unquote art books and fail miserably. We didn't want to fail. And it's funny, too, because a lot of the early image books, you know, I'm like right now I'm going through uh, Eric Savage Dragon, and, like, you know, I recently reread Spawn. A lot of the stuff holds up so damn well, and as one of those founding fathers, why do you think those books still hold up to this day? Uh, well, because I think people like Eric Larson and Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee and, and Rob Liefeld are, are extremely talented people. Um, and yourself and, as well. Shadowhawk is a fun book. And that's, you know, again, the magic of what those books are. Like, it's fun. And that's what comics are. Yeah, well, and that's what they should be. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that's why. I think they're all, you know, it, it, the funny thing about Image and the reason that it didn't happen before us and has really never happened after us is that um, all of us were kind of pretty good at business, you know, as well as being creators. And that's unusual. That doesn't happen very often, especially with a whole entire group of people. And when you look at a lot of the creators that have gone on to big things that got their start at Image, oh, are there wow. any creators out there that, you know, you look at them and their body of work after Image and, you know, even during, and you look at them like a proud father? Oh, all of them. All of them. I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm, a non, I, I'm not a competitive person on, on any level in any means. So I'm all for um, everyone being a success. I don't think it diminishes anyone. Um, and I'm really, really happy to see when, when guys are able to move on and move into other venues and, and follow their own dreams, whatever that is. You know, leaving image, you know, Mark Bagley to, to you know, bring, bring Mark up again, told me that he thought I was angry with him because he wanted to do Spider-Man. And I was like, no, it's, do what you want to do, man. You know, it's like, that's the whole point. That's the key, you know, just. Do the thing that makes you happy. Follow your own bliss. So when I see these guys that are successful, that have moved on, moved forward, um, I'm happy as I can be for them. 
And again, it's just so cool to see that Image is one of the companies that continually innovates and brings out the best in a writer and an artist. And there's some amazing stuff. Like one of my favorite series that Image put out in recent memory is, you know, Thumbs by Sean Lewis. And holy crap, what a book, you know? And just everything about the, you know, everything going on in the company. And, you know, I'm waiting with bated breath for when it finally returns, but Brian K. Vaughn's saga, just one of the Uh best comics on the stands. And I know you're one of the image guys and I don't want to hear, but, Oh, I hope it comes back soon. (laughs) That's all I can say. I hope with saga, you know, cause no one knows when uh, Brian's going to bring it back, but I hope it comes back soon. Well, I know that they, um, well, you know, they took a little bit extra time off because Fiona had a baby. Um, but you know they'll they'll be back as soon as all this lifts is what I understand. Anyways, you can thank a lot of the diversity and stuff to um, Eric Stevenson, um, who was basically my one of my first proteges. I think um, he sort of I, I sort of brought him I brought him into the industry and kind of taught him what little I knew. And uh, I'm glad to see him you know, moving forward the way he has. But he's certainly brought a lot of, uh, I think, a lot of great talent and a lot of great books to the company. Eddie? Jim, I want to thank you for your time, unless there's something else we've got to ask here. But uh, I just realized that not only did, like I mentioned earlier today, April 28th being National Superhero Day, and I don't know if you keep track of this, but we're exactly at the midpoint to your next birthday. So happy half birthday. <laughs> Well, thank you. I do mine, so why not somebody else here? <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, it was nice. I'll talk to you later, I guess. All right. So, Jim, before we go, how can people get a hold of you on social media? I'm just on Facebook. I'm, I'm an old-fashioned funny daddy. <laughs> but you're on no Facebook, problem. and that's good. Yeah. So, for The Marvelous, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Jim Valentino. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! Excelsior!